everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by people who have been previously on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Johannes Jorgensen, he was recommended to me by Olivia Kronk. So if you like this episode, you know what to do. Go back and listen to that one, or if you like this one, make sure you stick around. Johannes Jorgensen is the author of eight books of poetry and criticism, most recently Poetry Against All from 2020, and the translator of several books of poetry, including works by Asse Berg, Anne Jederlund, Helena Boberg, and Kim Yidium. Apologies on any pronunciations I got wrong, including Johannes's. His poems, translations, and critical writings have appeared in a wide array of journals in the U.S. and abroad. He is an associate professor in the English department at the University of Notre Dame, and together with Joelle McSweeney edits Action Books. His newest book, Summer, is out now through Tarbolin Sky and uh, largely the jumping off point of our discussion today. If you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can do so in a couple of different ways. Patreon.com slash NoisemakerJoe. I got three different tiers, and they all come with different things. You could throw a one-time donation to me at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you could buy my book. It's called Tired, and you can find it on Amazon. Also, this doesn't cost you any money. Tweet about the show, retweet my tweets, retweet other people's tweets, or just give it a five-star review, all of which help just as much as throwing a couple dollars my way. So, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Johannes. probably most prudent to start with summer um I, I particularly enjoyed the flowers for the riots section section two in summer um but i think before we hop into that we should talk about um the the main sort of influence and in what got you to start writing it because i think it's a pretty interesting story yeah i mean it started in summer I was visiting Sweden, which is where I'm from, and it was a very beautiful summer. And I just wanted to it to be. I wanted to to exist in that idyll, but I kept hearing news from the U.S. about Trump and so on. And so, the, at first, it was about keeping that out. But as I was trying to keep that out, I started using more, I usually write in English and I started writing in Swedish and Swedish words came in and entire poems in Swedish. And I was thinking, so then it became a way of thinking about like what to let in and what to keep out. And that's how it began. And at first I think it was more like a jumble of language but after a while, it started shaping into a rhythm, and then the rhythm kind of carried the poem forward. And then I kept writing this poem for three, four, maybe I said maybe 2016 to 2020. It's like four years, mm. um, and it moved away from the original writing, which was very, very had a lot of Swedish in it and was really a jumble, but it became about, came almost, became almost a narrative of sorts by the end. That's the basic arc of how it was, how it was written, how the, my idea of it changed. Yeah. Um, 
I was talking to Meg Fortier, who runs Tarpaulin Sky, who where this book came out from, and the way she described it was language slippage, which I think is a good way of putting it. Um, and you know, I I feel like it's probably something that you would see like a lot of TED talks about, like the brain of of the the multilingual person or something. But it always um, sort of fascinates me how I can't grasp exactly what that's like, like what it is like to know two languages very well or more even. Um, and so it, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's almost like it was accidental. Like it just kind of, I don't know, like you could only find words in Swedish to say what you were thinking or something like that. Well, it's partly because I was in Sweden. So, right. you know, Gertrude Stein has that famous quote about one going to Europe to be alone with the English language. But I, the, I was not able to be to stay alone with the English language because I was around. Everybody was speaking Swedish. I was listening to, uh, to you know, Swedish radio, and so it just kind of that's where it came from, and it felt really. It felt good. It felt really creative. It felt really fun when it started happening. Mm. Uh, and then I then I sort of pushed it in a certain direction. And I, I took like I said, I took a lot of that stuff out. It had been part of what generated the poem. But in the end, um, I just I kept I kept very specific moments where I let it in. I don't know if it captures how, what it's like to be bilingual but what i like to say what i like about it or what 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 i found inspiring and what i still like about it when i read it is that my mouth has to adjust you know your mouth your mouth i feel like it's in a different setting for different languages and so i'll when it switches to the swedish it it's like i don't really have time to switch i say the swedish words in English, or I don't have time to switch back, so I say the English words with the Swedish mouth, and then I think that's where, where like the the weird the weird energy of the poem. A lot of it comes from that, like the mouth becomes foreign to the language, or the language is really foreign to the mouth, even though I know both those languages. But because the mouth uh, has the wrong has the wrong settings has the I, i'm using the wrong mouth for the for the words um and i find that intriguing and i guess it leads to a certain kind of playful nonsensicality or it led to at first because at first i was just playing around with those kinds of feelings and settings and saying words and wrong with the wrong mouth and so on but I don't know if that I don't know anything about neuroscience of bilingualism or anything like that. So I couldn't tell you if uh, this is true in general for people or if this is just for me. Yeah, I, I had a couple of friends growing up who, you know, were either first generation or immigrants themselves. And I'd always try to, like, figure out how to ask the question of, like, how do you think? Like, what what language do you think in? Um and I don't know if it was just because I was talking to teenage boys at the time or, or if I, I worded the question wrong, but I never really got a satisfactory answer. Um, and mm. so, yeah, I don't know. Like, just because I've been, like, 
half-heartedly trying to learn German since I was in high school. Like, the idea of, like, actually knowing it and not just having it be, like, a slightly larger vocabulary that I just sometimes use um, is, is intriguing to me. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if I... If I think in language, so if I think in a language, certainly there are different. Yeah, I think I mean I think I mean I think I think in both languages. So uh, that's always been the way I've. Yeah, and I know, maybe it was even a year ago now, not too long ago. There was the whole sort of meme discussion of people talking about whether or not people had internal monologues or whatever. And so, and perhaps that question like doesn't even work for some people. Um, the idea of writing to like radio top forties is something interesting to me too, as I mostly find time to write at work and I work at a radio station currently. So like it's, it's talk radio. So I'm like tuning out other people's voices. Um, but I've talked to people on here who will listen to like, free jazz or something like try to be like really overstimulated um what's the effect of writing to music like for you um i don't typically write to free jazz i i typically write to pop music um and this is actually how when i first started writing poetry when i was like 13 what I was doing was I was rewriting or translating like pop lyrics. That's how I, that's how I started writing. Um, so it's not, I think it's, I remember somebody interviewed me like 10 years ago and they said, there's so many references to pop songs in your poems. You must really love pop music. And I felt kind of defensive at the time but then after it's like, you're right. I mean, this is what I, this is kind of what I've been doing all along. A lot of the poems are structured like pop songs. A lot of them, I times I steal um, like sentences, like catchy phrases. So that's the kind of stuff that he was catching in my, in my earlier book. Um, and in this, I do, I quote some of the, some pop songs in here. Um, Shelspass Bloom Moy Kung's Golden Cherry Blossoms in the King's Garden, which is like a song that was on the radio, um, for example. But yeah, so it's always been part of what I, how I've written. And uh, like if I need, a, you know, like I'm, I'm writing and I, if I need a phrase, I might just be like listening to for a while. Uh, but these are not complex, you know. Uh, I don't typically listen to like complex music. I, if anything, I want really simple phrases. You know, I a few years ago, my daughters were really into Taylor Swift, and her her songs are great for just stealing um, simple simple sentences that are generative, good that are good that are general. Like I, I evacuate the words and rearrange them whenever you. But um, yeah, or like just structures like simple pop song structures are good for poems i feel hmm. uh and then there's the other part to it um the the painting that you were sort of inspired by um you talked about in a interview 
a year or two ago that I read. Um, and that's another thing I was sort of encouraged to talk to you about is this like being influenced by or conversation with visual art, um, but not ekphrasis. Um, yeah, I mean, I think of it as some kind of ekphrasis. Um, most ekphrasis, or I shouldn't say that, but you know, a lot of ekphrasis strike me as kind of kind of dull because it it just ends up sep like describing the describing the the painting in some way um and that's not really how i feel like what i was doing with this painting this painting is a, a it's painted in i think 1928 so it's a picture of, i should say this this is a picture painting of two girls by a danish painter anton dix um they were his step daughter and her cousin um and i was staying at a friend's apartment and he had bought this painting by this unknown danish modernist um but it's an amazing painting it's really evocative um my friend then went on to write a whole book on his own uh this is like a non-fiction book about the painting because he became intrigued by it too but it has a mesmerizing quality and i feel like i wasn't really describing the painting as i was being affected by the painting and sometimes i imagined talking to the girls and sometimes i looked at the tree in the background sometimes it seemed like the girls were maybe my daughters so it wasn't I, my poems were never really description in that sense they were not ekphrases, but they were a different kind of ekphrases where the relationship between me and the painting was not as set, as stable. Uh, the power dynamics were not as clear. I was being, you know, I was obsessing over the painting and the painting was maybe exerting its influence on me, even when I wasn't writing about it. Um, so in a certain sense, the whole book is ekphrastic, but only if ekphrastic is something permeable and multi-directional and possibly um, yeah, only if it can be taken account like can you write an ekphrasis of a painting even if you're not describing that painting but that painting has a hold on you it creates an atmosphere an ambience in which I in which I started developing the poems. Like, can you write an ekphrastic poem that has nothing to do with that painting? I don't know if that's still like phrases or if it's something else. Hmm. Yeah, I, it was only like two or three years ago that I finally heard the term. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've been kind of like stuck on it uh, because I see people bringing it up a lot. Mm. And it just seems... It's odd to me that that's a thing that so many people think about a lot. Um, and so, like, as a person who's, you know, my degree is in broadcasting. I have a minor in writing. I took, like, five writing classes in college, right? I have, um, you know, academically far below a lot of the people I interact with on the Internet. And so I'm, like, always just kind of wondering where the context is that I'm missing uh, with a lot of words that people use. Um, I, I try to not assume that everyone's just cynically using big words to make themselves seem smarter and, and instead assume that I don't know something. And 
I don't know. Like, I guess I like what you said about it just now. Um, and just sort of using it as like a starting point, you know, unless we're talking about like the classical practice of like what people were doing in ancient Greece, but it doesn't seem to me like that's what people are talking about when they talk about it nowadays. I don't know what people talk about when they use that word. It's pretty common in, yeah, in writing classes to do like, this is our phrases week, I think because it actually often leads to good, pretty good writing from, from beginners and they will, they can, good writing that they can learn from maybe hmm. like uh, the kind of writing where you can go back and say, well, what, why did you use you know, more interesting language or whatever when you're describing a painting than when you were just like, quote unquote, trying to express yourself. So it might be like, it's like, that might be where a lot of it's coming from. Um, I, haven't, I don't think I've ever taught it, but it seems like it might work. Hmm. Um, I was also reading, like I referenced these poets. So I was also doing like, a lot of the poems are, I I dedicate to other poets, or I reference like I reference reading Eva Cristina Ulson a lot, and she her poems are something like. I want to say that they're ekphrastic too, even if they're not even about an artwork. But like here's the, I just happen to have this book here, the Angel Green Sacrament, like the way the cover. You see how the cover. Mm -hmm yeah it's then, translucent it's translucent and then you get to this the client in the climax it just turns green oh wow um something about the way that the vis it's maybe a reverse of that phrase it's something like the, vi the the language becomes visual in her work um well, there's a lot of photographs in her work she also does a lot of performance which seems to me to be mainly about like her hair or her, the clothes she's wearing. Um, so it's, if you think of ekphrasis, maybe a traditional idea of ekphrasis depends on a kind of fidelity. And this way, maybe it connects to my interest in translation or my thinking about translation. Like it should be correct. It should capture something about the painting. If you revert, if it, if that's, if that, equivalence or that fidelity is undone and suddenly you start like something about the visual the the experience of this angel like in this poem actually obliterates the language and the language becomes visual it's like the language doesn't have control over the painting anymore it can't caption the painting it can't describe the painting it's like the the visuals yeah becomes um becomes too much and it ruins ruins the the language that's the kind of like phrases i'm interested in like where balance and an economy and capturing and these kind of this kind of stable model of exchange between art forms when that's ruined that's what i'm interested in hmm. okay that that makes sense knowing um a little a little bit about the sort of necro pastoral thing that that um well Joel wrote the book on it um 
and I've seen you mention it in, in interviews and that sort of like very like holy nature of things, this sort of like mm-hmm. net network that forms itself into a paste sort of thing that um, I'm, I'm rereading that book um, for a literary group I'm in. And that's sort of the idea that I got from it this time around is that it's like, it's not a web, it's a paste and sort of thinking about art that way, like the relationships, because it kind of talking about it now kind of reminds me of like hip hop music that I like where it's lots of referential things. Um, for like many different reasons but then like you kind of hyper saturate that into its own sort of thing mm, um, yeah. so i don't know I'm, I'm interested in in your sort of um take on the necro pastoral as i'm deep in it these days uh, i like your description the, the pace the idea of pace because i think that's if you look at that page of, of Eva Christina Wilson's book, it's, maybe that is what it is. It's the mm. green. It's a green paste, maybe because it's so physical. Um, I have actually written an essay about Eva Christina Wilson and the Necropastoral, um, where I compared Joelle's writing about Wilfred Owen seeing the ghost of the enemy to to Wilson encountering an angel. Um, what is my take on it? Um, I guess it's a neck. I mean, it's it's a net. It's a framework. It's a framework for reading things, and it's very generative, especially for reading things that are that I like. I mean, a lot of ways they are. Joel developed those ideas out of reading things that I like. So, like for example, Anyadolund or Kimi Soon, um, and I guess the book could be my book summer could be read could be definitely be given a necropastoral reading it's because it imagines a space that is set you know it's a saturated space it's a space where like what what i called at some point i begin calling the giovanni room or giovanni's room where everything comes in everything is present the dead are present the living are present um the reason why I started calling it Giovanni's Room was because I was listening to an audio tape of James Baldwin's book, and I thought it said all the garbage of the sun, but it said all the garbage of the Seine, the river, mm. flooded into Giovanni's room. But I love this idea that all the garbage of the sun, which is like everything that has been produced, was flooding into this room. And also because Giovanni was something that my... Uh, <laughs> My best friend growing up, he was an Italian immigrant, and his dad, his dad's niece came to visit, and and she couldn't say Johannes, and he's like, oh, it's just Giovanni, mm. and I always remember that. So, years later, when I when the me and this guy went to Rome, we sat on the Spanish steps, and I looked up and I saw there's this placard for Keats, because he'd lived there, and it said Giovanni Keats, this like word Giovanni. Um, it's kind of just like stuck in my head. Um, but that's how I think of the, 
the, the poem is like this room of maybe multiple languages, the dead and the living, the flowers and the garbage and everything just comes in. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I was definitely thinking about it. Um, there, there's a section where there's a lot of repetition of, of the idea of rifles and flowers. And now that I'm saying it, I sort of see that 60s image of the protester with the with the flower who puts it in the barrel of the gun. Um, mm -hmm. But, like, the idea that flowers are, like, associated with, with death. You put them on graves, you bring them to funerals and stuff, but also, like, a bride holds them and you give them to somebody you love and they're supposed to be beautiful and smell nice and, uh, and everything. And I, th I think Joyelle even gave a talk... Uh, that's on YouTube that I watched a while back about like a particular flower that was like similarly beautiful, but like also poisonous and deadly or something to, to that extent. But mm -hmm. um, I guess kind of to that point, I, I see here that you wrote a book on essays on translation um, that I unfortunately haven't had a chance to read yet. But um, when I talked to Paul Cunningham about translation, I kind of expected it to like be be more than it was every once in a while i'll see people on twitter i follow a couple of people who translate um and there seems to be like a general frustration that people who don't really know what translators do don't value translators very much um but i don't, I don't know like i feel like i just expect there to be more of like um really intense feelings on translation uh, like among translators he kind of he kind of brought out the idea that in translating poetry there's people who do it kind of sonically and then there's people who do it more like literally um mm -hmm. but i'm i'm fascinated to know kind of what your general overarching thoughts on translation are oh wow yeah so i wrote a whole book and i'm working on another book about it um I guess I would say that my thoughts about translation are similar to my thought about ekphrases that we just talked about. There is an obsession with fidelity and ideas in all our discussions of translation, even as everyone already knows. Like I think the typical stance is to say, well, translation is impossible because you can't have an exact translation, as if that's what anybody wants. I mean, as if that's what we want. I mean, is that really what we want, the exact same thing to be reproduced? And why are we even translating? Um, so I think there's this sense that it's impossible, but then you're supposed to try to be as accurate as possible. Possibly you should be imagining that you that it's not a translation at all, but like you want to the, the reader to feel like it was written in their language. I think that is the most pervasive idea. Then there are people more recently, like over the last 20, 30 years, who have been really into the idea of translations that announce that there are translations that, so to reveal to you that translation is impossible. I mean, on one hand, you have people who want to, although they know it's impossible, they want to pretend that it's that it's actually written in your in the target language. And then on the other hand, you have people who say it's impossible and therefore they should announce that it's impossible. My stance is actually, those are both based on the idea that what translation want is a kind of fidelity to an original. 
I think the way I want out of translation is transformation, a metamorphosis. That's what happens to the text. The text moves, and then as it moves, it is changed. And I am changed as a translator, and I'm changed as the reader, and I'm changed as the author of books that are translated. So I'm more interested in this idea that the glitch or the flaw are actually like, those are interesting to me. They transform the text. They're part of a very volatile, my book is called Transgressive Circulation. There's part of like a volatile movement of texts. So everything, everybody's changed all the time. Why we are obsessed with trying to balance the books and trying to keep things static, I don't know. So in that way, I feel like it's a little bit like my acrostic discussion is that it's actually when I'm interested in the movement, in the noise, um, in the transformations. I want to be transformed by it, but I, and I want, I don't even want that idea that somehow this ideal that somehow it would be possible to have the same exact text because it's like, what's, why are we even doing that then? Um, and in that model, cultural difference becomes a problem that people are always trying to overcome these problems of cultural difference. Like, no, cultural difference is interesting. Mm -hmm. They're refracting the texts. That's interesting. I want to pay attention to that. It could be really revealing about, you know, the kind of cultural landscape. So that, I guess that's my take. Sure. I like that. I, I find, and, and maybe I got into this with Paul a little bit, but I'm feeling it very, very much so today. And I, I don't know why it's hitting me so strongly, but I feel like this intense anxiety about translation, um, like as a reader of, of translation, like I get kind of wholeheartedly this idea of like, well, if you wanted it exactly the way it was written, learn the language and then read it. Um, I, I listen to YouTube videos with, with people who read old Latin texts and old Greek and Aramaic and stuff and, and talk about how a lot of them aren't translated and like, you know, tips for people who want to get into, you know, studying ancient Israel or whatever, you just better learn Aramaic because that's otherwise you're going to get three books and, and that's it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so like, I, I get that. Um, and, but for, you know, spaces where translation is available. If I want to read Rilke or something, there's translations available. They abound. And like, there's an anxiety within me that I think comes from like playing video games as a kid and that like completionist model of like, I want to know, I, I want to be confident that I like read the actual thing, right? And like not, um, I was reading a review of, of, a, of a translation of Plato and this guy was like, if you're not careful, you're going to find that this translator kind of makes Plato sound like a Christian, um, mm. which, I mean, a lot of early Christian ideas came, you know, sort of cannibalized play, Platonic ideas and stuff, whatever. Um, like this idea that like, you know, the translator could have their own agenda. So like, I, I not only want to find somebody writing something that seems interesting to me, I need to like find the translation that I'm going to agree with if I want to read the thing. Um, because I can't invest the time to buy five translations of the symposium and read all of them and decide which one I like best and why, because I'm not a philosophy student. I'm just sort of generally interested in Plato. 
Um, and the same could be said of, of poetry too. Like my interest is like, I want to read it, to have read it, to have that baseline. So when I read more modern things that are influenced by it, I, I know what they're talking about and I can decide whether or not I agree with how they've read that text and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would, I think you're, it's probably good that you look up reviews of the different translations because their translations can be very, you know, can be, you know, I'm not saying all translations are incredible and, and awesome. Um, it sounds like maybe that one you were talking about <laughs> was kind of a problematic one, but I would still, I mean, I'm already intrigued by that. I mean, it's like, well, what is, who is this person who's Christianizing Plato? Or like you said, maybe it's the Plato is um, so influential in Christianity. So it's actually already opening up the space where we, for us to think about Christianity and Plato. Um, I think that anxiety is really widespread, both among translators, people who translate and people who read translations. There's this, you know, that, trans that anxiety is really pervasive. You just think about um, all the anxiety about Guantanamo, like, there was all this stuff about did that were the translator spies mm. are they trying to smuggle information into or out of guantanamo there's like no evidence but there's something inherently suspicious about translators because they are mediating the text um it, there's all these jokes about the sign language translators of politicians in real time and people looked at them like that that person doesn't know anything he's just making a sign you know um so that is really widespread and it comes out of some kind of anxiety about we want the completion. But even in the, if you read the original, you are of course not, uh, it's like you're not, there's no like perfect reading of the text to begin with you as a reader in of something in English. I always like to say that we have this, uh, there's an anxiety about mastery of reading foreign text. It's like, Am I getting the right version? Do I know the background of the text? Do I, can I really read this? And I think that's just, rather than trying to do away with them, I think that that's where translate, one of the th ways that translation is really important, powerful, and possibly a great influence. I think people maybe should have those anxieties when they read things in English, like what, what am I really reading here? Um, has this been, you know, what, how is this? affected by who I am? How is it affected by who the writer in? What if this writer is from like the South and I don't understand Southern references, that, that kind of anxiety. Rather than being anxiety, it could be like, uh, um, it's like a way of, just like a way of deepening your thinking about the text or just acknowledging the fact that you do not have mastery over the text which I think is a good thing to acknowledge. I think the, the illusion that you somehow have a mastery of a text is like leads to uninteresting readings of the text. Um, like, do we really want to master a text? I want text to master me more than I want to master the text. Can I really master a foreign language? Can I really master English? Can I really master poetry? Can't really. Um, so maybe translation actually reminds us of our non-powerful position in this flux of language mm. and that kind of liberating i think it's kind of liberating yeah the 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 sort of socratic i guess i just don't know 
Um, <laughs> as I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, 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 no, yeah, that's right. There is that other layer of, of anxiety on top of it that like, am I just reading the text correctly? I, I've been very upfront with, I think every, every poet who's been on the show that like, I'm just not confident when it comes to poetry. I read it and I'm like, yep, good. I like, I can tell if I like it. I can tell if I'm interested. And beyond that, I just, oh, I just feel very like uncomfortable. Um, and so doing the show has been a, a weird exercise and, and trying to deal with that and finding out that, I don't know, in, in four years, I don't feel like I've gotten much better at poetry and in, in air mm. quotes, but um yeah i think that that's i mean that's something again i think like that, i don't know if that's something you want to do away with like maybe it's just a different you want to you might just want to make it work for you better like if it's inhibiting you or keeping you from reading then i think it's bad but maybe it's like acknowledging that you don't have to have some kind of know that nobody has this complete knowledge of the poems uh, then it could be more fun and then like like you said, you you taking something from it. That's why is that any less valuable than it, reading anybody else get, gets from it? But poetry is particularly um, prone to these kind of feelings, um, and particularly poetry in translation. I think um, translators are very nervous. Like, do I have the skills to actually translate this? I have so many students and so on, or so they really want to translate things, but then they're like, well, what if I don't really know the language well enough? Or if I don't understand the book? And I'm always like, well, what? Who's, who else is going to translate it? Nobody else is going to translate it. So, you know, then it's just going to be untranslated. And all this, this anxiety just keeps us from reading poems and translating poems. Then it's bad. If, but if we can let it be instead um an acknowledgement of our of like some kind of that that completest reading is an illusion then it could be fun and it'd be like okay we don't none of us are going to master these texts let's have fun with it let's do let's see what where it will take us if we just you know we have our views dig into it let ourselves be affected by it yeah i <laughs> I'm going to work on that and, and we'll see how it goes. Like, because yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I read because it's fun, you know, uh, yeah. the, the fact that I, we live in a world where I have to then feel like I have to go in front of a couple hundred people and then tell them how I feel about something that I read is, you know, a, a bummer uh, about modernity, I guess sometimes, but I mean, I enjoy reading poems and and that should be enough um and oh, you are you're already doing so much more you have this show i mean this is a big thing um that you devoted a huge part of your life to write to like discussing and thinking about the text i mean that's that's really important mm. yeah i i mm. yeah i I'm bad at at uh, accepting statements like that, so I'm gonna I'm going to acknowledge that and, and move on. I think that the right. <laughs> one of the the things I wanted to move on into, and I think maybe this is a good time to do it, is is talk about your academic work because you teach. Um, I think I saw that you have a PhD. I do, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I think you're maybe one of fewer than five people I've talked to who have one. And um, a couple of years ago, I had a friend who who has had a an MFA from Warren Wilson, and he was very encouraging to me to to apply and to get an MFA, and he he was very for it. And and now the people I hang out with are um not into that idea <laughs> um uh and and whether or not i think that the biggest thing that stopped me is i was looking at the application materials and it was kind of like you know implying that i needed to have like an idea of like a thing to study um like kind of specifically kind of narrowly and then as i understand phd programs you narrow it even further to like a thing and as much as I enjoy the act of studying and, and learning, um, like, I don't know if I can focus myself, uh, that like, um, oh, I can't think of the word. I, I can't like dedicate myself to like a thing. Um, I, I get to like, I don't know. I'll, I'll see a, a link on Wikipedia that opens up an entire new avenue for me, and I am off in a different direction. Very much like a small dog that way. But um, I'd like to know sort of what your, you know, even before working in academia, like your path through it as a, as a person participating in it, like what's that experience like, um, you know, are you glad you did it? Um, yes, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I'm still involved in it. I think, uh, I think I got I'm an amazing job to like talk, to respond to people's poems and try to uh, encourage people to think about stuff and think about their writing. It's like it's great to be part of those discussions. I really feel lucky about that um and i don't i like i mean i i prefer what you call the, the small dog method of 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 studying i think myself i was never a specialist of anything i guess i'm a specialist in translation maybe but that's like a saying you're specialist i don't know uh, I think it's like saying you're a specialist on the little on the little dog because translation is a little bit like the little dog in that analogy. Um, so I try, yeah. I mean, that's how I work. It's always to to follow my interests, my obsessions, encourage people to follow their interests and obsessions. And it could be like moving. I can move outside of literature. It can move into literature. It can move into the past. It can move into other countries' literatures. Um, it can, you know, bring in language from other fields and so on. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I steal pop songs all the time. Um, and I also steal from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I, I, I'm really grateful for my, for this job. And I got a lot out of all my schoolings. I feel like I was, I was, I've always been somewhat at odds with where I've been but I think that's true of everybody nobody really fits into academia whether it's undergraduate or MFA school or whatever um, 
you have to yeah, yeah there's always a process of discussion and compromise and and so on but yeah i've i i really love teaching and being um, i mean not all parts like department meetings or whatever i'm not a big fan of whatever but you know it's not it's not so bad that i would quit um and i know why some people i mean i think that it doesn't mean I have an uncritical view of, of MFA programs. I think MFA programs on the whole has, should, you know, there are things I'd like to see different in a lot of these programs um, and the way it makes students think about writing and publishing and so on. But on the whole, I'm, yeah, I'm psyched. I'm pleased as pancakes to be teaching writing. I'm interested in, in sort of getting an idea of, of what the PhD process is like for someone doing literature. Like I kind of understand for less artistic things, but for the, the artist, uh, I can't even begin to imagine what it's like. Well, you know, I have an, I have a PhD, but it's a PhD in creative writing. Mm -hmm. So those are very or I should say it's a create, I wrote a creative thesis. I wrote a book of poetry and because I was in the creative writing track they let me take whatever classes i wanted this is not true for your standard phd which is quite a bit more specializing and specialized which i could never do because i have that little dog mentality mm -hmm. that you talked about um yeah so i would say it's, it's critical writing i mean or academic writing is not critical writing but academic writing is, is really difficult for me it just can't it's not how my brain is wired some people it, it is and it can be very productive for them the, the kind of method and structure of the essay and the talk and so on but mine is a little bit my brain just can't can't always comply so i that yeah, I could not do a standard PhD. Yeah. Same. Like, I'd like to believe that I could. I'd like to believe that I could just sit down with, I don't know, Max Stirner and just hammer out 200 pages on radical anarcho-individualism and, you know, in six years or whatever and, I don't know, not ever have a job again. But, uh, you know, it's... I'd like to believe a lot of things about myself too. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear a more warm idea about it. I, I, you know, the, the idea that, I mean, the, the way you described your job sounded an awful lot, like how I view this, right? Like engaging with writing and talking to people about it and, you know, at least for me, I don't have the pressure of having to impart knowledge on anybody, um, which I, f I feel like that is a thing that, again, with more like objective type things, right? Like, I feel like if I were a history professor, I'd, I, I wouldn't have a super duper hard time with it. But, you know, r r leading a, a poetry workshop seems incredibly stressful to me. Well, you know, impart. I never think of myself as imparting knowledge because that's, I don't know what what I would be, what that knowledge would be, what it would be imparting, and how I would be imparting it. It seems like 
if you impart knowledge, that is like knowledge is something that already pre-exists, uh, something set, and then you convey it to the people. But I think it's just like when you're teaching, especially in more like graduate class, it's more like you create a space where of feedback, where you can, where people can try things out, where they can get a suggestions for reading, suggestions for directions to try out. You know, can um, you know have people read their work and see how people read their work uh, and get a different perspective on their their their, their on their writing. So it's not really imparting knowledge. It's more like imp maybe it's imparting certain attitudes of, of playfulness and and openness and experimental experimentalistic approach or something like this. Uh, or not even imparting it, maybe maybe modeling a certain kind of openness and playfulness to these things. But I don't think of it as imparting knowledge. Uh, that would that would make it less exciting to me. Mm. I mean, maybe sometimes I, you know, I have back, I have a lot of background and if people, people think it's helpful, I will definitely tell them about, I don't know, some, some stuff that's been done, some stuff about history, whatever. Um, some maybe useful frameworks for them to view their texts, but I'd never think about that there is a thing called poetry that I'm going to impart to them because that I want some I want things to be a little bit more a little less set and a little bit more open to discussion and I can take things away from it as well then too. Yeah. So it's more of like a facilitating sort of position, right? You Yeah. You're seen as sort of in charge of the of the space and lead <laughs> yeah. lead people around barely barely in, barely in charge but yeah, maybe. nominally sure okay yeah that's an interesting way to think about it i guess that makes me feel a little bit calmer about it i i have this this thing about me that like anytime i see a person doing a job part of my brain just thinks about it as an inevitability that i will eventually do that job anybody from like the garbage truck driver to you know a priest or something and i'm just like yeah so so if i have to do that like how would i do that and the the academic thing just seems strange to me I, mm. it is unusual I, but not as unusual as a priest i think priest <laughs> is more unusual i think so too i th that idea died pretty young in me I think I, I think once i realized that i i enjoy being in romantic relationships it, it's sort of fluttered away um yeah so i i don't know like i i part of me like wants to believe in the academic institution like even even as a person with the sort of radical politics that i have and 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 whatnot like i get sad when i talk to people who are adjuncts who are like having as hard a time as you know, I am in the broadcasting world where it's just like, oh, geez, like, oh, man, like, we just don't respect workers in any position, huh? Like, you know, so I'm, I'm not saying that you're like saying that that isn't happening or, or whatever, like, um, there, there's a, 
a professor who does YouTube lectures who talks about how he feels like he has a moral obligation to be a teacher because he has the knowledge. And I think that comes from maybe a more religious place um, than a lot of people I know would even have. Um, but like, you know, part of me like someday wants to be a teacher in some capacity somehow. And, you know, the the scope of that is like youtube video essays or college professor or high school teacher which no thank you but um so it's like i have a weird attachment to the idea that it is possibly a good job does that make any sense yeah i mean what you're in i mean it sounds like you're just like in you're interested in the act of teaching uh in the maybe participating in that kind of experience mine i think a lot of people feel that way it's like it's exciting it's um it's exciting it's fun it's it's everything is constantly adjusting to new people and new subject matters why not you know it's it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, I should say I, I never, I don't know if I ever felt like I was going into all this to become a teacher. It is something I became, I, you know, I went to college. I was like, not sure if I wanted to go to college, but then I went to college. I really loved college. So then I wanted to go to graduate school because I wanted to learn more. I wanted to be, I wanted to be in that learning place more. So then I continued, I went, and I went back out into the non-learning world and was worked in a blue collar job for a few years. And I re just realized that I wanted to be in academia because it gave me a certain, just like created just a very, very privileged space of where you can just focus on your, these kind of intellectual obsessions and have people around you who, who are into that as well. And um, and also not being exhausted all the time from from the work I was doing. Although, you know, as you say, some some people are in academia are working uh, as adjunct, and that is um, uh, which is equally exhausting. But um, yeah, you're still part of that learning thing. That is can be really exciting. It can be depressing too if things don't turn out right, like some, some classes maybe not turn out right. And then that's really depressing and disappointing, but when it works and you're getting, sending feedback back and forth and people are experimenting with writing, with reading, with thinking about literature, then it's really exciting. And Yeah. Good. Uh, I'll reiterate. I'm just, I'm glad to hear that. Like, I like, I like to hear that. I, it's, I'd like to, hear that as much as I like hearing people passionate about like the act of creating literature too. It just, I don't know. It, it feels, I don't know. Like it feels so entwined to me, even though I know so many writers who aren't teachers and never would be teachers or anything like that. Like, I don't know. Like for some reason, the act of writing feels academic to me. And so it feel yeah. it feels like they're, should be at least like within me like there should be a learning that's happening with everything that i'm writing even if what i'm writing isn't you know a treatise on the enjambment or something like that you know it's 
Hmm. Yeah, maybe some kind of learning. Not. I think I don't like. I mean, I don't like books that, like you said, impart knowledge on me. It's not, yeah, it turns me off more than when people start giving me advice on how to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I've, on Twitter, it's like all oh, people sharing these poems of wisdom and it's like this self-help or not self-help, other help, people mm-hmm. telling other people how to live well. And it's like, it's not the kind of literature I'm interested in. Um, so I guess there's two, there's like two dueling relationships going on. It's like one, in what I hear you saying, on one hand, there is a kind of le- pedagogy where you impart knowledge and that might go along with a certain kind of literature that lends itself to that kind of teaching. And then there's a kind of teaching where it's more about establishing a mood and having experiences. And um, that, I think, lends itself to a different, totally different model of literature. Um, something far less well-behaved, something far less, um, something far less prone to giving advice and words of wisdom um but if i have i mean if all i did was read that first kind of writing in classes that imparted knowledge i think that would burn me out really really quickly and and also would disappoint depress me Mm -hmm. yeah i i do like every once in a while i'll be reading something and i'll ask myself like what is this doing like what is this trying to to say um and sometimes the answer becomes clear and sometimes it was obvious all along um Mm. but i i I like it when i read something that makes me feel like the only way i can understand it is to just go off and write my own thing and like maybe in the act of writing i'll kind of figure out like what it is it's amazing to me how much (laughs) of literature like can't be um put into words can be yeah i mean yeah it can be put into words like but like you said you're only it can't be put into words only if you expect it to be an i what you're making is an identical copy but like you said it so well just a second ago it makes you want to go out there and write something else but that's also already in relationship to the thing you read and that might be you know, that could be a, um, in some ways that is putting in, putting into words your feelings about some other per- person's words or some other person's words inspires you or takes you over or uh, like the painting did to me when I wrote Summer. Um, it's just if you expect it to ha- follow some kind of narrow economy of one equals one equivalence, then it may, like that's a really that's a really um, difficult task and possibly soul killing. Um, on one hand, you know, people say like you, uh, they're so invested in this kind of the unique author that can't be paraphrased. But then on the other hand, I think for me, the best writers are like what you said, people who make me want to write other things, move on. Like, I think that's maybe what beauty is. Beauty is something that demand. De- demands to not be copied, but demands to be something that 
demands for us to enter into this into a relationship with it where we are producing you know um we're producing our own poems our own writing um it's puts 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 some poison in us and that keeps reproducing itself in us some kind of mutation or something all right so these are poems from the collection summer some of them will have Swedish words in them, but it's not that important that you understand the, the Swedish words. Some of them you will gather after a while. For example, sirener means lilacs. That's one of the key terms. Uskuld um, means virginity. Skuld means debt. So you can already tell that virginity in Swedish actually is undebt. So there's a lot of discussions about debt and undebt being tainted by a virgin by, by the world or not being tainted by it uh, own, owing things and not owing things uh, it does make reference to to the painting that we talked about and those the names of the two girls that were painted are Lillian and Hannah so they they appear sometimes um, the, the word Pöbeln appears the, which means kind of like rabble because Another influence was a book of poems by a Swedish poet. It's like, there's a there's a rabble at my doorstep. Uh, was one of the key things that I started writing about. All right, so let me just I'll just start reading from some of the early ones and then move along, and you'll see certain shifts happening. This one begins with the painting. Two girls are seated in a painting from 1923. It's summer. In the painting, it's suicide to be home while the rabble is at the door with books and photographs from war. The cold war is almost over and I'm almost eight years old and I'm almost a necklace made from fox bones, a necklace made for summer at Halsband for ending the future and Hals for summer, a summer throat summer music it's sung by the ocean hovet i wonder if i can hear hovet now or if i'm listening to the rabble herban is at the door with a hundred bloodied fingerprints lilac hands in the leaves made for skin and silver images of the underworld which i'm stealing from war poetry even though my daughters Dötrana, still alive, is the name of another painting. A figure is stabbing my bed. I'm not there. You can't hear me. The rabble is too loud, singing my ocean song. Pöben, with pomegranate seeds in their mouths. And on my body is a messy photograph of my body being subjected to a treatment against inflation, which I now will call poetry. I will finish the treatment, but not yet, not until I learn how to fire the revolver. Is that sound is that, that coming through clearly? Yeah, it sounds great. Okay. This one is dedicated to the Swedish poet Anja Adeland. How can you think I'm listening to the rabble, I'm marrying the venom 
from my lips to the summer outside my window with its treason language of lilacs and how that language dreams about me, how I must be finished with flowers. No, I'm finished with the treatment you see in the photograph. The caption reads, Bondum, as I thread amber on a string. I haven't cut it yet. I'm going to cut it. I'm going to cut every string of every necklace because I have to go further, further into the Rutna Sommeren if I'm going to end Skulden as I search for a language I can speak when I'm not ever writing again. How disgusting to be beautiful, says the tree to me about Surenana, Dötrana in the painting of a swan in the drone song, drone song in the shooting in the fur around my pretty neck. There are lies, summer lus, idrönet from the rabble. I cannot understand the debt. I'm in, I'm in a fox fur at the shooting range. There's a drone that drowns out and lies crawl in the fur. I'm humming the rabble's song. It sounds some hovet. I'm drowning i hovet. It sounds like children are shooting each other in summer. It sounds like I am their mother of pearl father, their suicide father. It's the same thing. I am a virgin in noise. Uskuld i uyud, unsound. It's hard to be an unanimal when the radio tells me I'm disgusting when I try to write the song, when I try to remain a virgin without debt. Summer is my debt. No poetry is. I can't pay for it with mother of pearls. I can't pay for it. I'm the one reading Eva Christina Ulsson's Antigone with Schöspers Blümmer i Kungsträdgården. I have that oceanic look. That mother is my death letter look. It says I don't belong where I belong to June, the last June, 11 a.m. And I know what the secret is, what the secret does is lilac. Follow my voice, my voice, follow my voice, I follow your voice into Surenana. I follow the rabble, the voices, the birthmark on your torso, puncture, wound, puncture, wound. A wound is a sign for Syrah, for I don't want the butterflies to die in 
the rabble, I take my headphones off, I take my rabbled body till Skridarsborar, till Sirener, till den rottiga dikten about my eyelids, om mina ögon lock. I am translating the poem, om mina döttrar, until it's the color of oxidized metal. You are the color of stain, glass, window. I am the color red beneath trees where you hiding, where you are punctured lungs. My beautiful pen inlaid with bird bone is what I use to write as I think to my daughter, the storm purple from in trap. I think to my daughter, the Motogit photographier of Tuma Plastkasa, one like Rixkreier from Sommaren, props for your body, the hole in your lungs, the sound I hear is a morning sound, morning after riots, morning after rabble, morning after daughter, it should be snowing. I can't hear a word in all this morning. I'm cutting flowers for the riots. Yeah, so I mean, the poem gets, one thing we didn't talk about is the poem gets kind of angrier after a while. Um, so here are some little more angry poems. I write a poem for Venice in shocking red and burn the evidence. I write milk in red on the wall of the butterfly pavilion where I'm spending a summer writing hate poems about wanting to burn banks down. Instead, I write a letter to a corpse but don't be fooled. It's a love poem in praise of smashing windows, burning cars. My lovely sub sister, the milk, it's poisoned. I want to kill in blue. Let's pretend to eat candy in hell where we belong with all those bullet holes we could make a rabble strong enough to kill my debt to make me a virgin anti-matter but i am an anti-father now let's pretend between the bodies in this room there is a third body it can breathe in this winter palace where the rabble has been uncovered beneath tarpaulin, where I write poems like kill, lists, debt, lists. I write poems like a garland, no, like I want to oblivionate. Kill the lights, my subsister speaks to me, tells me kill, the lights tells me we have to 
go now, have to join the rabble, have to set this room on fire, have to photograph the ruins, have to call that sublime, have to call levothyroxine milk, have to call this poem all the garbage in the sun, have to pay for it with ashes, antimatter, antibody, anti-breath. I'm no longer people. My daughter wears a mask, a breathing mask. When I picture her, she can't speak. When I listen to her, she speaks at fremande språk, a mechanical rhythm. It's her breathing. It's a protest poem, protest breath. I ask my arteries about oxygen. Summer, why doesn't it end? I ask the lilacs about my dotos ansikte. I ask min dotos ansikte how I can pay the debt. I pay the debt. I ask Neilikur about the no, about her breath. Why does it hum? I ask my hands when I have finally collected all the butterflies in Giovanni's room, why they can't write poems about butterflies. They write a poem about butterflies. It's a kill list and the sun is in the first line and poetry is in the next to last line. In the last line, I carry my daughter like lilacs. And so here's the, I'll read a little bit from the last section, which is called The World, which does not have any Swedish in it. The sun is money. I repeat, the sun is money. I can't afford to kill the sun. So I write a poem about the hole in my daughter's lung. But my hands shake from the poison and the sun shakes from money. So I write a poem with money, but the torso is too fragile. The poem has to be softer, softer. It has to be even softer, even softer still, because it's summer and people are sick and it's time for the sun to die because it's summer. Not because pomegranate seeds still trickle out of my mouth, not because the rabble breaks in, because I can't speak to them. I write a poem in summer English. The poem is called Burn the Meadow Down, You Hundred Million Killers of Children. It's a poem about angels. It's called Save Me from Summer, Save Me from Lilacs. Then it's called No, No, No. It's called I Spit You Out. No, I spit you out until I'm almost crying. I'm almost crying. I'm crying. It's almost over. I tell summer. Lilacs is how it replies. Mm -hmm.